way better strategies out there. In fact, the strategies you probably haven't heard of or haven't heard much about are the ones that are likely to work, which is why the minority become wealthy and the majority end up broke. Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. My name is Kerwin Donis. My brothers and I got into real estate investing to achieve financial freedom and help underserved communities in Guatemala, where our mom is from. Real estate is the vehicle we're taking to achieve our goals, and you can too. On this show, we share the stories of some of the most successful real estate investors to show you that you can succeed in real estate just like they have. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. Let's go. Chris Miles, the cash flow expert and anti-financial advisor, is a leading authority teaching entrepreneurs and professionals how to get their money working for them today. He's an author, podcast host of the Chris Miles Money Show, has been featured in US News, CNN Money, Entrepreneur on Fire, Bigger Pockets, and has a proven reputation with his company, Money Ripples, getting his clients fast financial results. In fact, his personal clients have increased their cash flow by over 250 million in the last 11 years. After dropping out of college, Chris became a financial advisor, and he did that for some time. However, after he came to a world-shattering realization that everything he'd been taught was wrong, he began to question the investments he'd been offering clients for years. My journey, you know, started out not in real estate. You know, I, I started out in the typical journey, like most Americans, right? Where parents were, you know, either employees or just broke or just over broke, right? Um, working their jobs. I was the first one in my family to go to college. So they had hopes and dreams for me. And, and then about right before I was going to get my bachelor's, I dropped out of college to become an entrepreneur, um, primarily because I figured if I was going to have my own business as a business consultant, that was my original goal, um, I should probably have business experience, right? Not just book smarts. Well, I dropped out of college, became an entrepreneur. And the first opening that came up was actually becoming a financial advisor, um, I didn't know it was so easy to become a financial advisor. All you had to do is pass a test and have a heartbeat and you, you can be a financial expert, right? And, uh, and so that's what I did. And the thing is, I love being an entrepreneur and, and I loved helping people. And so that's what I did for four years. Uh, this is, and I, I started that right after 9-11. So, I mean, pretty much Y2K right in the middle of that. So a great time to start a financial advising business when the stock market's tanking, right? Um, but I did it for four years. And, uh, but over those four years, um, I'm one of those guys I like evidence. I like to know that things work, right? And so over those four years, I started to have some doubts. I started to wonder if it was really going to work. Because for example, when I learned that the, the real rate of return of the stock market, because we always tell people it's averaged 12% since 2000 BC, right? Since the Romans almost, you know, it's like, hey, it's, it's, it's for sure. You know, we can't guarantee it, you know, but still 12%. Um, but what I found out was the market was only actually only averaging about eight, right? Seven to eight percent, depending on the time period you're looking at, as a real rate of return. And when I looked at that, I thought, well, dang, if I change my numbers when I'm trying to project the numbers for them, well, that becomes more depressing. And then if I put in a you know inflation rate higher than two or three percent, that got depressing because then I realized, well, inflation is higher than people tell us, especially that the government tells us because they don't want to have inflation showing too high because they have to raise social security payments with it, right? So that's not true either. So when I started putting in real numbers, it was depressing. I, and I found out no one can retire financially free using mutual funds, right? 
Um, but still I was like, well, what do I do? You know, so I, I kind of dropped my securities license in 2005. I said, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do stock trading and options trading and then teach, you know, just do life insurance type stuff. Well, lo and behold, of course, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, right? Um, one of my friends who was in real estate, uh, he left financial advising to go to real estate investing four months prior. This is the end of 2005. And, uh, and, and I called him up to wish him Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year, thinking, okay, he's probably broke. Maybe he'll come back and work for me again. It was the opposite. He's like, man, I partnered with my dad on these real estate deals, Chris, and we've doubled his income as a professor at the local university. I'm like, wait, I remember your dad was making about like 80 or 90 grand a year at the university. You're telling me that he's making that much in just four months doing real estate? Yeah, isn't that awesome? Come on, man. That's too good to be true. There's no way that can happen, right? The same thing you've probably heard too, right? It's like, it's too good to be true. You know, it's like, no, like it's legit. And so we got in this de debate, right? What's better, stocks or real estate? And he finally stopped me. He said, Chris, how many of your clients are financially free where they don't worry about money? I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, um, I'm like, you mean like where they don't worry? I'm like, well, even the retired ones watch CNN. If you watch CNN, you're going to retire. You're, you're going to freak out about everything. You know, the world's falling apart. The sky's falling when you watch CNN, right? And I'm like, well, none. I guess none of them are financially free because they all worry about running out of money. He said, well, good job, Chris. Way to go. Um, but how about this? How many of you as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, right? But actually from doing these investments. How many of you guys could actually quit the, your work right now not take any of the renewals and all that stuff from, from the business and just live off the investments. And I'm like, well, I've known guys working here since the late seventies. So probably none. And he's like, well, there's your problem. Well, tell me the answer. I'm not going to tell you the answer, Chris. You just got done arguing with me that real estate sucks. So um, I'm not going to tell you. I'm like, come on, you got me to admit it. Give me something. And so he said, all right, we'll get this book. Who took my money by Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, which basically just says mutual funds suck. Right. Um, and then go and uh, listen to this AM talk radio show that was just these local guys in real estate, listen to what these guys have to say. And so I did over a few months, I did that. And by March of 06, I said, I can't teach this stuff anymore and be an in integrity. I can't teach this. I know it's wrong. I know it doesn't work. I'm out. So instead, I ended up getting mentored by some of these guys. And by the, that summer, I was able to be financially independent myself when I was almost 29 years old. Um, and then I was like, what am I going to be when I grow up? And eventually in 2007, came out of retirement, started teaching people how to do this stuff and create more cash flow, find cash, um, and essentially create an anti-financial plan, right? And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. As a financial advisor, there were many things about investing that Chris was convinced were true. That was his world and what everyone around him believed. But the conversation he had with his real estate friend broke the paradigms that were deeply ingrained in his own mind. As a financial advisor, and maybe you've seen the charts if you ever met with a financial advisor, which really I, I feel your pain if you have, unfortunately, you know. But you know, when you meet with financial advisors, they show you the, the historical charts, right? Since like 1920s, usually, and it's all the ups and downs. And always on top, you see, you know, small cap stocks, then large cap, you know, like 10 point something percent, you know, small caps like around 12, you know, large cap around 10 point something percent. And then down by inflation, they show 3%, which shows real estate and treasury bonds and T-bills, you know, all the stuff that makes no returns. Because they're looking at just the home values saying, oh, they only grow about 3 or 4% a year. Not that exciting. So when he's telling me he's making that much money in real estate, especially because my belief was always like many people are brainwashed to believe, right? Which is 
You got to save up and squirrel your money away, save up those nuts for someday, and hopefully you'll have just enough so you can live on less than the interest because you got to make sure that you, you can handle inflation when it goes up. So you have to take out more money. So you got to live on less than the interest so you don't run out of money too quickly, right? Um, so for example, if you happen to be lucky enough to save up or like say a million dollars in your IRAs, right? Well, people used to say, if you have 4%, you know, if you could pull out 4% a year, you're good. That number was old and antiquated. Like when I hear the whole fire movement, and maybe you've seen these people too, the fire movement, people believe in mutual funds. They believe in ETFs and things like that. And they think you can live on 4%. And the truth is that's too much. Like even when I, like almost 20 years ago, we're saying, well, people are living longer. Interest rates are going down. That's, that's kind of a, a crazy number. It should only be two or 3%. So if you have a million dollars, that means you're living on 20 or 30,000 a year before you get the taxes pulled out, right? Like you're living, you're living below poverty as a millionaire. Think about it. Like you're, you're impoverished. And so as a result, that's, that's the, the thinking I was coming from. So when I'm thinking about, you know, saving up, you got to save up. And I was hoping to save up like $2 million by the time I was 40. So then I can live on that like 3%, right? So I'd be living on 60,000 a year, 5,000 a month. Cause at that time, 5,000 a month felt like freedom, you know? You know, almost 20 years ago, it felt like freedom. Yeah. Uh, now it's like you can't even hardly survive on $5,000 a month, you know? Absolutely. Um, and so that's, that was the perspective I came from, right? So when he's talking about, hey, they've now made 80, you know, like 70, $80,000 a year or more from real estate, I'm like, come on, in four months, how is that even possible? Because cash flow never focuses in your mind, it's always about accumulation. But real investors focus on acceleration, not accumulation. We're about, Cash flow, what actually generates real passive income? So the same thing, even when I talked with my passive investor clients, right? It's like, listen, you have that same million bucks, you were hoping for 20 or 30 grand a year in the market. But we can take that same hundred grand and even conservatively, if you make 10% in like a multifamily deal or something like that, 10% a year, which usually you go for at least teens, you know, on the IRR, right? But even if it's 10%, that's still a hundred grand a year versus 20 or 30 grand. And you could probably get depreciation stuff passed on too. So you keep more of your money pay less in taxes. So it's, it's like a completely different evolution. And that's what blew my mind. That's why after a few months, I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I was one, I felt horrible about what I taught, but two is I was super pumped about all the possibilities what could be created because now there was hope again, like people could actually become financially free and not by 65, 75, 85, right. But actually in their thirties, you forties, know, fifties, you know, much faster. After that experience with his real estate friend, Chris wanted to find a way to break into the real estate industry. The question was, how? He started to think about how he could take advantage of the booming market, and Chris got creative. So it was right after I met those guys, right? So I started thinking more creatively. Um, and the big thing was like, we're trying to figure out like how to get the equity out. Because much like this market, that market in 2006 was appreciating pretty quickly, right? It was, it was booming. Um, and even appraisers, we're like, you know, fluffing their numbers. You know, not like today. That's the good news that today is not like the boom market of 2006. When people say there's a crash coming. No, there's not. It's not the same times. I remember because I was a mortgage broker during that time because I might have quit being a financial advisor, but I kept doing mortgages. As a mortgage broker, the appraisers were putting their values way high. Um, banks would lend money to anybody with a heartbeat. You could just state whatever income you, had, you were making. And as long as you had a good credit score, they would believe you. You wouldn't have to show them paycheck stubs. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore right? That's actually tying with the 2006 property, right? Because so my starter home that I had bought, I then said, I'm going to sell this to an investor. 
So, so I got a little bit creative, right? I sold it to investor at full appraised value. I got the appraisal. It was like 165,000. I bought it for like 115, three years prior, sold it to investor for 165, got all that equity out. And then I went and turned around and leased it back from the investor. So then I could sublet it out to a tenant, right? So I could rent it out and basically create rental income from it. So I had a rental property that I didn't own. I controlled it. I had the lease on it, but I didn't own it, right? Um, and I thought that was the most brilliant thing in the world. Uh, now, granted, it, it was negative cash flow from day one, right? That was the problem is that I did get the equity out, but I thought, well, as long as I make enough cash flow with that equity, well, I'm going to offset that negative, you know, that uh, negative cash flow on the property. So mistake number one, that was a dumb move because I should have just sold it, got the money out, and then moved it on to something else instead of having negative returns. But again, I was thinking about, hey, it's appreciating. So keep it going. Granted, property is worth $300,000 today, right? But I would have to keep it for that long, you know? So anyways, long story short, I kept it till about 2008. Now, 2007, I came out of, re- out of retirement, right? To teach people stuff. I came out with these other guys that were also financially independent like I was. And our focus was towards real estate investors, right? That was our biggest pool of group where real estate investors that were doing the same thing. They were buying properties, you know, cashing out all the equity, investing it, and just m- turning money over. They're basically just flippers, right? Flipping, flipping, flipping like crazy. The problem was, of course, once everything came to a halt, 2007, right? And I remember because I had just bought a new McMansion. You know, I was 28 years old, one of the youngest guys in the neighborhood moving in. Um, you know, now I think it's not worth much, but it was over $600,000. Coming from a $150,000 house, then going to a $600,000 house felt like a big jump. And it was. Um, and the payment was way higher because the interest rates were higher too. So I was paying like uh, $4,200 a month instead of, 750 bucks a month on my old house, right? So uh, yeah, I was making all this passive income, but it was, it was being eaten up by the house payment and stuff, right? But again, I'm thinking in my head, well, if it appreciates 10%, 600,000, that's 60,000 gain. <laughs> no brainer. Who cares if I'm negative cash flow, right? Or who cares if it eats up some of my, my own available cash? So I got sloppy. I, got, I, I was banking on appreciation, right? That was the big mistake, number one. Banking on appreciation, Number two was I wasn't focusing on the cash flow, the passive income, which is what got me financially independent in the first place, ironically. But I, start, I started looking at just growth, 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 right? Appreciation and that kind of thing. So I started ignoring it. So by uh, to that middle of 2007, I finished off my basement. I said, cool, I should have equity now. And they did. I'm like, I had 150,000 equity in that house I just bought, you know, just within the last year. So 2007, I'm like, hey, I want to start cashing that money out, July of 07. They said, Ooh, well, we're making things a little bit stricter now. So if you get your your your, you know, if you get the the uh, the credit score up two more points, just two points, we'll give it to you. So I had to wait a whole month for the new credit report to come out. August comes around, they said, oh, just last week we just changed a few requirements. So you have to do this, this, and this first before you do it. But good job on getting your credit up, right? So I did. Um, I did everything they asked. September 07 rolls around. They said we're sorry, we don't do any more cash out refis. I'm like, what? Like, I, I just dumped a ton of money into this house in hopes that I'd just be able to cash it out whenever I thought, right? Because you just get a HELOC whenever. This is why I'm a totally against the velocity banking strategy of using a HELOC to invest and like max it out and then pay it down, max it out. Because if you pay it down and, th- and banks get scared, they'll cut your limits down and then your money's trapped in your house. That was the worst thing that could happen. So now all my cash, all those, that savings I thought I had, I'd thrown into the home 
And I had some savings, but that got eaten up because I was negative cash flow now because the new business I just launched, like all those real estate investors now couldn't pay us. So now we're floating all this money. I found myself in the hole about $15,000, $16,000 a month by you know mid to late 2007. And, and that's where I went from millionaire to like upside down millionaire because now my home values were dropping. I was losing equity. I did eventually get out from that real estate deal, that starter home. I did eventually sell out of it um, by 2008. Um, but I mean, not with a lot of, without a lot of stress. Right. Um, so I got out of that 2009, I foreclosed on my, my McMansion. Right. Um, and two weeks, actually one week before my son, my fourth child was born, my son. And so we had to pay the guy $2,000 to rent it for two more weeks, just to give us time to have the baby and then move out with postpartum, you know, into a smaller place and downsize. Um, I didn't file for bankruptcy, but I did eventually dig my way out of that million dollar debt hole to the point where by the end of 2016, I was out of the rat race once again. So I was able to do it twice by the time I was 39. Chris quickly came to understand that cash flow was the key to generating passive income and escaping the rat race. The same advice he gives his clients today is the same philosophy he followed to achieve financial freedom and build a portfolio of cash flowing assets. Anybody who's been in business, you know that the number one thing you look for in business is profit, right? It's not about the revenue. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it's how much you're able to keep. Right. It's because if anything goes wrong, it gives you that buffer. It gives you that safety. And it's the same thing with cash flow. I mean, even, even just yesterday, I had somebody asking me, they're like, okay, do I buy, you know, single family or du- single family homes or duplexes? Or do I get in this syndicate, this multifamily syndication? Or what do I do? And I was like, well, it depends. What's your focus? Like, if your focus is on passive income, and this guy has a three year goal of, pa- of 5,000 a month passive income, and he's 37 years old. So he wants to do it by the time he's 40. Right. I said, Listen, if you want to hit that 5,000 a month based on your situation, we should be investing more for cash flow. Even if we do multifamily syndications, we might want to look for preferred returns, right? Like something that's decent that's going to give you regular cash flow. Because, yeah, we could do a syndication, but if it's only growth focused, it wouldn't fit your parameters, right? Now, other pre- people I have several clients where they're saying, hey, I got three, five, 10 years to let this money grow. Cool. Then let's do those growth ones, right? But for them, especially because that passive income, and he doesn't really need the money, he has plenty of money. But he wants to get to the place that I try to get all my clients to, which is work because you want to, not because you have to. So for him, you know, based on his burn rate of his monthly expenses, he only needs about 5,500 a month to cover everything. And he makes a couple hundred grand a year. But if he can get to at least $5,000 a month, he can say, you know what? I don't have to work today. I don't have to go into work. I don't have to do that. I'm fine. And so, so that's the difference, right? It's that different mentality of switching of, hey, we want passive income because there's safety in that. Because if 2020 taught us anything, we can't guarantee our income's gonna be, be around. What if, what if the business you work for is considered unnecessary, right? And then they shut you down for several months because of some other issue going on in the world, right? I mean, there were so many people that were caught just exposed because they didn't have any cash reserves. They didn't have that profit and they were struggling for money. You don't want to be in that place. And so having multiple streams of passive income coming in is the only, really the only sure way of safety. Different investments have different tax benefits. Real estate offers great tax benefits to investors like Chris, such as depreciation, cost segregation, and more. Although investing options like private lending offer strong returns, they don't offer the same tax benefits as owning assets does. It's basically referred to as tax-adjusted returns, right? That's the thing you have to consider. Um, say, I mean, so whether you're trying to be a lender 
um, or you're just, uh, I mean, especially if you're in the place of lending and a place of debt, you don't really get any tax advantages, right? I mean, you just get paid interest. It's the same thing like when people are doing like fundraise. They're like, yeah, I'm loaning my money out, which I have some issues with because I'm like, I don't want to take high risks with my money. I like low risks, higher returns. So let's just say they take like lending, for example, say you make 10%, you're all pumped up. But if you're living in California, for example, which I've got a lot of clients that are out there, um, and with state tax and federal tax income tax, you're going to be taxed 40%. So instead of making 10%, the after taxes, you're only making six. Versus like if you're if you own a property, right, or you have ownership in a property. So whether it's you own the property and control it yourself, like I love turnkey investing, like turnkey rentals. That's one of my favorite strategies. But I'm not going to put everything there. You know, I've got money also in like syndications because. The cool thing is with turnkey rentals and with syndications, especially when they pass on those tax benefits, that depreciation and bonus depreciation and everything else, right? And cost segregation. When you factor all that stuff in, you essentially keep pretty much everything you make or a lot of it or most of it. So again, say that that multifamily syndication, say you only say they only promised you 8%, right? And you're like, oh, well, I can make 10% lending my money over here. That's better. Well, no, it's not. Because if you get taxed at 40%, you only make 6 well, over here, if you make eight, but you keep it all, you just made 2% more because you kept it. So tax, you know, figuring out what the tax adjusted return is very important because sometimes those numbers can, you know, definitely throw you off. And, and I've got short-term lenders that, you know, I've connected people to, and they might pay anywhere from 12, 11, 12, even up to 18% a year. But, you know, especially if they're turning money over, there might be some months they don't pay you. So you get paid a little bit less and then you get tax on that money it may or may not end up beating what you could do in buying real estate. You know? So that's, that's the key thing. You got to really look at that. And you know, if you're in a low tax bracket, great. You know, if you're a real estate professional, great. You know, Because then you can write off all the kind of stuff. You can have your active stuff and then do lending and other things and keep more of your money. But if you're not an active investor or a real estate professional, um, you're like most of my clients where they work full-time in a job or in their business, you know, you're probably going to want to really look hard at what's going to give you the better tax advantage. Being considered a real estate professional is beneficial for real estate investors who meet the requirements. Although it can be complicated to meet the minimum threshold of hours, there are some creative ways an investor can be considered a real estate professional. And as Chris understands and advises clients, it all comes down to the hours. It's a little bit tricky because you got to get at least 750 hours a year, you know, minimum, right? Um, and that's and that's assume either 750 hours or um, at least one hour more a year than whatever you're working on the side, right? So if you work in a business or a job, if you're if you're working, you know, two thousand hours a year, you got to get two thousand and one to become a real estate professional, right? So it's a little tricky. Although I have some, you know, husband and wife couples where the one spouse is working, the other spouse might say, "Well, I'm not working. Uh, let me hit that seven hundred fifty hours. That's about fifteen hours a week average." Here's the trick, though, is that it's got to be a, a qualified activity, right? So it's got to be something where you're looking for properties, you're hunting. It could be dealing with the design or architecture. It could be dealing with the building and, and things like that. So if you're building a property, you're going to be doing a lot of hours, right? Uh, managing the property yourself. See, I do turnkey rentals. I'm managing the property manager. I don't get a lot of hours from that. Um, but the, the type of activities that might help you get those hours might be like getting short-term rentals, right? Um, it really helps kind of like the bonus is if you get a rental in your backyard, right? You know, in your local area. Now I'll tell you, most areas are not good to have in your backyard. Um, Cause I get a lot of people on the Western half of the U S and I tell them, 
look east. Like I'm like look in the southeast U.S., look in the Midwest. You know, look in places like the Carolinas, or look in places like Alabama, or maybe like you know Missouri and places like that. But or maybe even Oklahoma City, right? OKC. But you know, you don't want to be looking out west. You know, but if you had to get something, it is nice if the IRS agent ever asks you, hey. Do you actively manage something? Even if you got a bunch of, you know, say you got passive investments, whether it's multifamily, turnkeys, whatever out East, you'd always say, it's kind of like having a whole bunch of $1 bills and wrapping a 20 around it, right? It's like, it looks like a lot of money, but it's really just 25 bucks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, same kind of strategy. You can say, hey, but I got the short-term rental. We're managing it. We're doing it. It's very active, right? Um, I like, you know, traveling. You know, if you do, do go do a road trip, an RV trip, like, hey, go visit areas that you might buy rentals. I love going to Hawaii. I mean, I'll never buy a rental there, but I always look. You know? <laughs> and if I can write off those hours while I'm looking at some of those properties and traveling around, great. You know, um, So there's different activities you can do. Um, and, and even in multifamily, you could do it too, especially if you're more of a, more of a partner involved, right? If there's some active involvement inside of it. You can often count some of those hours too, even doing the due diligence and doing some other stuff. Or maybe you're given a role within the company of saying, hey, I'll be in charge of this. Great. You, know, you can count those hours too. Many people see the stock market as more conservative and less risky than real estate. Chris thought this as a financial advisor. However, after he became a real estate investor and realized the truth, there was no way he could unsee it. When people tell me like, hey, I'm a conservative investor, right? Um, or conservative saver, more likely, if they're, inv- if they're putting money in the stock market, you're not an investor, you're a gambler, for one, um, but you're saving money into the stock market, right? Uh, whether it's mutual funds or whatever it might be. The thing I got to tell people is, no, you're not a conservative investor. You're not a conservative saver. You're a comfortable saver. That's what you really are. You're comfortable because the masses are doing it. You're thinking it should be okay. But remember, whatever the masses are doing is typically wrong when it comes to money. Because if it were the correct thing to do, everybody would be wealthy, but they're not. And, And there's that BS out there that people say, oh yeah, well, Dave Ramsey, I agree with him because he says everybody's a spender. I'm one of those few savers. Just so you know the real statistics, because Dave Ramsey full of crap, okay? I'm going to just say it, a wonderful man, uh, but the guy teaches information that's completely outdated and not even relevant to today. Um, He'll tell you that everybody's a spender. The truth is, if you look at the stats, and I looked at just in the last few months, more people are saving money than going into debt. In fact, more debt has been paid off in the last few years, especially since 2020, than ever. Um, people are actually, there's more than half of people saving in a 401k that's eligible for it. And remember, there's people like us that are eligible for a 401k and won't save in it, right? Because 401ks suck. <laughs> so just so you know, 401k is one of the worst places you can put your money um, with the match. And that's a whole nother topic by itself, right? So understand that, you know, when you're like, when you put your money in a place where there's no control, there's no freedom. Because if it's, if it's always the whims of the market, right? And the truth is that if you know that the returns aren't as good, you take higher risks with mediocre returns, as we talked about. By the way, the, the actual 30-year average of the S&P is 8.4% with the last 13 years being straight up. So we've already had this way out of whack. We already know there's a correction coming in the market. So 8.4% is excessive. Usually it's between 7 and 8% as a long-term average. So already right there, you're like, I'm, t- I'm getting mediocre returns and I'm taking all these high risks for what? What purpose? That's the problem is that people are taking these massive risks where with real estate, you own and control the property. It doesn't move from day to day. You know, you don't see values change from day to day. And again, if it's focused on cash flow, 
know, it doesn't matter what the value does. If you know that you're profitable, you're making money off that property, even if it did tank in value, which it probably won't because out of the last six recessions, only once did the values drop and that was the last one. Well, even if that happens, you know you're okay because still you've got cash flow coming in to more than pay for itself. That's the key. And so, yeah, when I see people saying like, oh yeah, I'm a conservative investor. I don't do all this alternative stuff. I'm like, honestly, you're a gambler. If you're in the market, you're a gambler. You think high risk creates high returns. You're a gambler. Low risk is what creates higher returns. You just got to reverse that so that you can actually be wealthy versus the, all the other Americans that believe high risk creates high returns and they're still paycheck to paycheck, hoping they save enough for someday. But the truth is that their savings aren't growing enough to even be able to retire comfortably. Many people invest in 401ks. Coming from a financial advising background, Chris understands what a 401k is and how it works. And the reality of the benefits and risks of investing in a 401k might surprise you. The biggest argument for doing the 401k, right, is that there's the match, right? Now, if you're a business owner, you're paying your own match. Like I had a dentist yesterday that I was talking to that said that, I'm like, well, there's no benefit. It's basically an IRA for you, you know? Now, some people will say, well, I'm delaying my, I'm, I'm postponing taxes. I get a write-off. No, you don't get a write-off. You're just delaying your taxes till a future date. Do you really believe with the rate of inflation and the way it's going that you're going to be spending less money in the future? Because it's not about what your income is. It's about how much you have to pull out. Because whenever you pull money out of that account, it counts as ordinary income. So you're putting away for later. But say, for example, you only need, you're like, I only need $100,000 a year today, right? Let's just say that's the number. But in 10, 12 years from now, that same lifestyle is going to be about $200,000 a year. Will that push you in a higher tax bracket just because of inflation? Even if taxes stay the same, you have to take out more money to live. That puts you in a worse place. But the biggest thing, now that's the, the that, that I think that's easy. Like the whole thinking you're going to pay taxes less in the future is a dumb, dumb idea. The worst one is the match because people say that's 100% return. Um, I show this on my podcast. You'll have to go to Chris Miles Money Show to look for it. But I talk about the myth of the match, the 401k lie. Um, I showed someone putting in $6,000 a year, right? Um, and, uh, you know, just enough to get that 100% match, you know, that 6%, they're making 100,000 a year, get that 6% match on 6,000, it's 12,000, right? But I showed if you got 6,000 at 107% return per year for 40 years, you would have, get this, 50 quadrillion dollars, not billion, not even trillion, quadrillion, 50 quadrillion dollars by saving your measly $6,000 a year. Do you really think you'll be a quadrillionaire in 40 years? Like richer than Bezos, that, that's never going to happen, right? Um, so it's not a hundred percent return that you're getting, especially compounded. The truth is, I, I did that same example. You're only getting about an extra two and a half percent return. So you're you're seven percent. You're you're like if it was eight percent average, you got you know, sorry seven percent average. It went up to nine and a half percent. So whoop de do, you made two and a half percent for that perfect dollar for dollar match. But most people I see because they know that's not going to be enough to save and hit their goals, they max fund their 401ks, right? So they put in that 19,500, allow the match to go in. I showed that same example on that podcast and it only added 1%. So you went from 7% to 8.06% average return in 40 years. That's crappy. And then you still got to pay taxes on it. So now if you, even if you paid only 25% taxes on 8%, now you're left with six. You have been better off doing real estate the whole time, right? And again, and that's, and that's not even counting the fact you have to pull out less cash anyway. So uh, the, the whole point is, is that the match does nothing. I would rather take that same money, just like a person I talked to before we did this interview, right? Um, I was saying, instead of max funding your 401k, 
take that money out. We put it into our life insurance, right? We can put it in there, let it grow like a Roth IRA without all the limits and then pull that, use that money to go invest in real estate. And we actually get a double dip because I can make money in the, in the life insurance, you know, at least a good three, four, 5% net on top of whatever return I earn on my real estate. So if I make 10% on my real estate, I'm making like an, at least a 13% return with both working together. Way better than getting this dumb little match from a 401k. So way better strategies out there. In fact, the strategies you probably haven't heard of or haven't heard much about are the ones that are likely to work, which is why the minority become wealthy and the majority end up broke. The 2008 recession had a major impact on Chris and his financial well-being. Although his entire life changed after the crash, there were some major takeaways from that experience that he passes on to other people so they can avoid his mistakes. The biggest thing was that, that recession. That recession hurt me bad. You know, and it's funny because I went through a similar experience to like Dave Ramsey. And remember, Dave Ramsey came out on the other side was anti-debt, right? He was anti-debt. I didn't come out that way. Um, I came out not anti-debt, even though debt hurt me, right? But I realized that when I did the calculations of the actual numbers, even though I was debt-free, I was still negative cash flow. Debt-free had nothing to do with it. And I, when I say debt-free, I don't mean with a mortgage. I mean with no mortgages or anything. If I would have been 100% debt-free, I would have still been negative cash flow because again, cash flow has to be the focus. And so the one thing I've told a lot of people in 2020 that I still echo today, if you haven't followed this advice, is get lean, get liquid, and get out, right? Get lean, meaning that you got to start tracking your money, really understanding how much is coming in, how much is going out, and controlling the spending, right? Don't have to live in a cardboard box. Don't be cheap. Don't live on rice and beans because that's, that's scarcity and it doesn't work, right? But be a wise steward of your money. Try to be efficient with that. Because again, the lower the expenses, the easier it is to hit your financial independence number, right? Where you try to get out of the rat race. So control it. Don't be cheap, but do control it to where you're using productive expenses as much as you can and still enjoy a little bit of life today, right? Um, get liquid means have liquid cash on hand. So many people, even people that are trying to invest in passive stuff, they try to deploy every dollar they have. And then when a better opportunity comes along, they're stuck because they've already deployed everything. Sometimes it's just better to have that available cash, especially if something bad happens. Like we talked about like 2020, where they shut down businesses because they're non-essential, right? You got to be careful of that. And then get out. Get out might mean, hey, if, if you've been enjoying 13 plus years of the stock market, is it time to sell and take your profits? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not you know, advising anybody on the air to do that because everybody's situation is different, right? But what I am saying is, you know, there might be a reason to take those gains and then move it to a place that's safer before the market does correct, which it has to do at some point. It has to come back into balance, just like it always does every time. And don't think that the market will just go straight up because 13 years in a row has actually been a record by more than double the years. I mean, previous to this, six years in a row was considered incredible bull market. We've yeah. had 13 years in a row. Remember 2009 you know, was, was an up year, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, all the way now to 21 is still an up year. You got to be careful like that, that. The more it goes up, the harder it can fall. So this might be the time to get out of that and then move your money into places that can actually generate real cash flow, real passive income that gives you more certainty today. In 2016, Chris reached a point in his life where he found himself at a crossroads. He could continue to enjoy the fruits of his labor and receive passive income, or he could step back into the game and help other people achieve the financial freedom he'd achieved by thinking outside of the norm. It's, it's interesting because like, like I said, 2016, end of, end of that year, I went to a place where I was working maybe five, 
hours a week or so. And I was just doing my podcast, consulting a little bit, but not doing much. I was just a one-man show. But of course, whenever you, whenever I try to retire, that's when people want to pull me out of retirement and say, hey, how'd you do it? All that kind of stuff, right? Um, I, I saw that my business was organically growing and I had to make a choice a few years ago. I was like, either I'm going to keep growing this and let it go and I can keep creating a lot of value in people's lives and help teach differently, or I just be happy with my own little life, my family, and just turn it off, right? Um, but I'll tell you, I, I feel like and I unless you've got to the point of financial freedom, you probably won't get it. Um, but when you get to that point where you, money's no longer an issue, you have to start to ask, well, what is my life about? What am I about? And for me, that my company Money Ripples, I mean, if I were to live in integrity with that and with my values, it's about creating a ripple effect through people's lives, like really being a steward of not just my money, but steward of the education, the things that I know, the wisdom I've gained over the years. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm still teaching. I had to scale uh, to a point where it couldn't just be me anymore. I had to start getting a team around me. You know, I got a good core solid team that helps me, you know, do the consulting and coaching and they help me with the infinite banking side of things and help people like use that in a way that's best with investments and, and, and just keep the podcast growing. And we're now we've got a podcast that's in its seventh, almost eighth season now. And we've got over 540 episodes. I mean, it's, it's such an, a, it's been such a blessed time. Like I'm really glad I made that decision to keep growing rather than shrinking and just being quiet. Through content and service, Chris is determined to empower many other investors to achieve financial freedom. His vision is to create a ripple effect that will spread from one person to another and from one generation to the next. That's pretty much it, right? Is that ripple effect. Um, you know, like my vision is by 2030, there'll be, you know, literally over 1000 people that are financially independent that we've helped and, and got them to that point. Um, because I'll tell you, just one person becoming financially independent makes a massive difference. I mean, not only does it create a ripple effect in the community and across the country and things like that, because there's more prosperity. Um, not only do people get more, more people get employed, you know, because people aren't living in scarcity, right? But your family, I mean, most importantly, is like for that ripple effect to continue, it's got to continue a legacy beyond you. It's got to be generations beyond you. And, and that's the big thing I see is that it creates this different perspective, a different look. Because I mean, imagine you might be just learning this now, whatever age you are currently, then your kids learn this from day one. Imagine how much more advantage they have over you. Uh, that's, that's really the ripple effect I'm trying to create. That's something that goes beyond me, goes beyond the grave, you know, and, and it just keeps continuing to ripple beyond. Chris has gotten to where he is by holding on to hope and being willing to stray from the crowd. He echoes these themes and cites them as essential ingredients to success and escaping from the rat race that so many people are trapped in. One, that there's hope. And then two, your best, your best, really your best strategy is to do the opposite. <laughs> so just remember that if you keep doing what the mainstream has always done, you're going to keep getting the results they've always gotten, which is not good. It's people that live in scarcity, people that live in a life of lack, right? And I'm not just talking about lack of stuff and lack of money. I'm talking about a lack of living, right? You want to have a different life as something that's not the status quo, something that's better. Uh, you got to, you got to do the opposite. You got to break the mold. You got to be able to break into doing the very things that we talk about on this show, right? You got to do those things. You do that. I promise you, you have way more hope than most of Americans who think they're going to be stuck in this rut for the rest of their lives. To learn more about Chris and access all of his resources to take control of your financial future, here's where you can go. 
You can find my podcast on YouTube or any other platform, iTunes or whatever. Uh, the Chris Miles Money Show is the podcast you can find. Uh, and then you can also go to our website, moneyripples.com. That's M-O-N-E-Y-R-I-P-P-L-E-S.com. Great resources on there as well. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. If you got value from this episode, please do us a favor and give us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. If you want to avoid the top five mistakes passive investors make, you can also check out our free ebook by going to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com and downloading it. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Until then, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.